Well, good morning, church. It is great to be with you today, whether you're in person, if you're joining us online. As Buddy said, my name is Neil Reynolds, and it is my honor to be with you today and to spend some time worshiping with you today and presenting the Word of God to you this morning. As we get started, I want to invite you to think about how you think. So there's this guy named Mark Gunger. He's a pastor and he does marriage seminars across the country. And as a part of those seminars, he talks about the ways that men think and the ways that women think. And when he talks about the way that men think, he says that men have different boxes in their brains where they keep their thinking compartmentalized. They've got a box for the car, a box for the finances, a box for the kids, a box for the work. And they keep their minds compartmentalized. He even goes as far as to say that men in their minds have a box for nothing. Uh, My wonderful wife Katie and I have integrated this into the way that we talk with one another. There are times when I'm staring at the TV watching golf on a Sunday afternoon with that glazed over look in my face and she'll ask me, Are you in your nothing box? So this afternoon, if you see that look on your guy's face and you wonder what's going on up there, chances are it's nothing. So even though it's possible for some of us to think about nothing, I want to invite you this morning to think about how you think. It's a really important exercise. Psychologists have discovered that it's a really important thing to do. They call it cognitive behavioral therapy. They know that the way that we behave at times, it affects the way that we think. And for our purposes today, more importantly, they've discovered that the way that we think affects the way that we behave. And essentially, I want to ask you this morning to think about how you think because statistically speaking, the majority of Christians in the United States of America do not think like Christians. It's a pretty shocking statement, I know, so let me take a moment and unpack that. As I was doing a teaching series on thoughts a couple of years ago, I came across this book that was written by George Barna in 2003, and the book is called Think Like Jesus. He was revealing some research in this book that he had done discovering whether or not followers of Christ in the United States in the early 2000s had what he would call a Christ-centered biblical worldview. And he began by asking them this battery of questions about how they make moral decisions. So he asked them, do you use the Bible as a moral decision-making lens? And he found at that time, in 2003, only 14% of born-again Christians used the Scriptures as a moral decision-making lens. He also asked them, do you believe in something known as universal moral truth? And again, only 14%, the combination of using the Bible through a moral decision-making lens, or actually believing in the concept of moral truth. Only 14% of born-again Christians believe that. Then he would ask them these six questions about the truth of God's Word, what he believed was the foundation of a biblical worldview. He would ask them their belief on those different statements. And what he discovered and what he revealed in this book That in 2003, now remember, 2003, these are the grandparents and parents of today's college students. These are people who have raised an entire generation of people. There's a generation of grandkids of these people. He found that 91%, 
of all born-again adults in 2003 did not have a biblical worldview. He found that 98% of all teenagers in 2003 did not have a biblical worldview. 20 years ago, Christians didn't think like Christians. And in the book, Barna says prophetically this, when people wonder why the Christian church is losing influence in American society, which seven out of 10 American adults currently contend, the reason is that so very few think like Jesus. It seems that Christians are more affected by society than society is affected by Christians. Why is that, he asked. Perhaps because more than nine out of every ten born-again Christians fail to think like Jesus. They think like the rest of the world, so they naturally behave like the citizens of this world too. And here's my assumption. If this was a problem 20 years ago, it hasn't gotten any better. And so this morning, I want to invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 40, and we're going to discover a principle, a truth that is foundational for thinking like a follower of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to look at verses 12 through 31 together. If you're here today and you don't have a Bible, that's all right. We're just really glad that you chose to be with us this morning at Landmark Church. We're going to start in verse 12, but let me give you a little bit of background about what's going on in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is a part of a block of books in the Old Testament that's called the major prophets. It precedes a block of books that's called the minor prophets. The major prophets are called major because they're longer than the minors. And the prophets were preachers. They preached at different points in the history of God's people, Israel. Isaiah is preaching 100 years before the Babylonian exile. And he's warning the people to repent, to turn back to God, to come back to their first love in Yahweh. And then in chapter 40, Isaiah is giving the people a picture post-exile. After they've been exiled and they've come back to the nation of Israel, they've received their land back, he's encouraging them to think in a certain way. Isaiah 40, let's read verses 12 through 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? Or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Again, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals Enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it. 
And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Let me pause there for a minute. Some incredible imagery in these verses about the power, the might, the awesomeness of God. He says he measures the waters in the hollows of his hands, the Atlantic, the Gulf of Mexico, the Pacific, the Mississippi, the Mississippi River, all the great waterways. God just scoops them up into his hands. He measures the sky with his fingers. I was down on the Gulf Coast last weekend. I was down with my, my wife and my two girls on vacation. And when you look out at the Gulf, it's amazing. You can turn to your right and you see the Gulf end. You turn over to your left, you see it end. And you can actually see the curvature of the earth out there just looking at that one little sliver of the Gulf of Mexico. And Isaiah says when God stretched out the skies, he just used his fingers and went... That's about right, as he describes his power. He holds the dirt of the world in a basket. You know, when we need to build something, move some dirt around, we get a bulldozer or some heavy machinery, not God. All the dirt just sits in a basket, maybe in the corner of heaven somewhere. He's taken the mountains and the hills, and he puts them on a scale, to compare them maybe to him. We think about our smallness in light of the mountains of the world, the Rockies, the Appalachians, Mount Everest, not God. He actually can weigh those on a scale that he has, according to Isaiah. The islands are like fine dust to him. The nations that seem so significant to us, Babylon, Persia, the United States of America, seem so significant, seem so lasting, just a drop in the bucket to God. And the islands, they're fine dust to him. All nations in comparison to him, Isaiah says, they're less than nothing. Try to wrap your mind around that. How can something be less than nothing? Well, all the nations in the world in comparison to God, they're not even something. They're less than something. They're less than nothing. How do you compare God to something? You can't do it, Isaiah is saying. He sits above the earth, and the people are like grasshoppers to him. I love the language that Isaiah uses. The heavens, he says, are like a tent. A tent, I assume, that God has no trouble putting up, like some of us might struggle to put a tent. 
That's how he hangs the heavens. There, he puts them out like a tent. He's over world events like who becomes king. All he has to do is... And he can remove any ruler from any position of authority. Isaiah says, who will you compare me to? This is God speaking through Isaiah. Who is my equal? God even brings the stars out one by one. And he knows their names. We can't even count them. But when God hangs them in the sky, he knows each one's name. This is true about God. And yet... The Israelites struggle to integrate this into the way that they think. Look at verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Even though this is how God is, he's large and in charge. The people struggle to think in this way. I would sum up verse 27 by saying Israel's struggle is this. God doesn't see me. God doesn't care about me. And to me, this speaks to the power and the timelessness of Scripture. Because I think for so many of us, This is our struggle for faith as well. We at times struggle to believe that God sees and God cares. I had this friend in college. Her name was Aura. She had a delightful personality. And she was an outspoken atheist. And one time a group of friends were sitting around talking and they asked her, why don't you believe in God? And she said, when I was a kid, my dad abused me. And I prayed to God as a kid that he would stop. And he didn't stop. And therefore, I don't believe in God. She's got this emotional reason connected to this idea. She said, if if there is a God who knows about what's happening to me, who sees it and doesn't do anything, it's not a God that I would want to believe in. For some of us, it's an intellectual reason. We see war, we see famine, we see pain, we see loss, and we go, how can a good, loving God see this and not do something about it? It causes us to not believe or to embrace a view of God, what we of which we call deism. He created the world and gave it a spin and he left. He's not intimately involved in the details of our lives. See, Israel is struggling to think about God in the proper way. Even though he measures the heavens with his fingers, they say he doesn't see and he doesn't care. Keep reading on, verse 28. Do you not know Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He just comes back and reiterates God's power, God's strength, God's awesomeness. And what is Isaiah saying in all of this? He's saying God is large and in charge. Is there anybody here today who believes God's large and in charge? He is large, and he is in charge. He's the king of history. 
Isaiah saying, it's not Babylon that's the king of history. It's not Persia that's the king of history. God is the king of history. He's God over all things. He sees all things. What Isaiah is saying essentially is, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. And it's the same idea throughout Scripture. This wasn't just true in Isaiah's day. It was true in our day today. Let me just testify for a moment from the New Testament about King Jesus. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Amen? He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Amen? For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. He existed before anything else. And He holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. It's in Isaiah 40. It's throughout Scripture. We see it in the New Testament. And the big idea and the foundation for thinking like a follower of Jesus, for thinking like someone who has given their life to Christ, is this. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. I came here today to encourage you to walk by faith and not by sight. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules that universe today. It sounds so basic, doesn't it? But it is much more difficult to integrate this truth into your thinking than to amen when you hear it on Sunday. You know what I'm saying? There's all kinds of macro applications to this principle and all kinds of micro applications. Macro applications meaning they apply to world events and things we see going on in the world and then there's applications that apply to me in my life. So let's talk about macro applications. This truth that God's the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today, it applies to the way that we think about world events like elections natural disasters and conflicts. And perhaps in no other area does it boggle my mind to hear the way that followers of Jesus think than when it comes to current events and politics. It's interesting to hear the things that people say that belie the way that they think about the world that we live in. They'll say things about certain candidates like, if this candidate gets into office, then Christians are doomed. Christians are in trouble if that candidate wins. 
I don't want my grandkids to grow up in a world where that person has authority. I actually heard somebody say at my church over the last couple of years that there is one particular person who is a public figure and a politician who poses the single greatest threat to Christianity in America. And I hear people say stuff like this and I just go, really? Really? Like God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. He holds all the waters of the world in his hand. He can hang the heavens like a tent in the sky. He knows the name of every star. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He's been changing men and women's lives the world over for centuries. But if your candidate doesn't win, we're in trouble. Just point blank, my friends. The people of God need to upgrade their statements of fear to statements of faith. Because at best, those sort of statements of fear, they reveal that we're thinking poorly, that we aren't thinking with faith, and at worst, it reveals that our hope is in someone or something other than the Lord our God. And there's a biblical name for that. It's called idolatry. It's false worship. And so this morning, we need to think about how we think integrated into all of our thinking when it comes to world events is that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. So that's the big picture. This principle also applies to every aspect of my life. This truth applies to the way that we think about life events like the disappointment at work, the illness that totally derailed your life, the loss of a loved one, the end of a relationship, the betrayal by someone that you love. It applies to every aspect of your life. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. And I'm very sympathetic to people who struggle to have faith. I've had times in my life where um, very difficult things were going on. In fact, years ago, my wife and I were in an adoption process, and the adoption looked like it was going to fail. In fact, it did. I remember one night driving around where we lived, crying out to God, begging Him to change the situation. And even as I was praying those prayers, I just knew God wasn't going to answer the way that I wanted Him to answer. I understand what it's like to struggle to have faith. But my friends, what you've got to know today is that the presence of difficulty in your life does not imply the absence of God. The presence of difficulty in your life does not imply that God doesn't care about your situation. Even in the midst of difficulty, we walk by faith and not by sight. We trust God as the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe. There's all kinds of applications to this. My assumption is that there's somebody here today who's going to drop a child off to go to kindergarten for the first time in a matter of weeks. There's probably somebody here today who's going to drop a child off at a university And they're going to go to college for the first time. And my question to you is, how do you think about that? I'm thinking about this personally. Uh, My wife Katie and I have two daughters. One's a 14-year-old. One is is eight. 
And for the past several years, my wife Katie's been homeschooling our girls. And this fall, Grace Ann, our youngest, she's going to go to public school. So it'll be her first time to go to school. And I'm thinking about pulling up to that school on August 10th. She's going to have her backpack on, watching her walk to that door for the very first time and go through those doors. The part of me is challenging for me as I think about Uvalde. Think about all the things going on in our world. But it challenges me. How do I think about it? You know, if God's the all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe who still rules the universe today, then I've got to believe that God is Lord over Vestavia Hills Elementary School in Northport, Alabama. I've got to believe that he's got people there. That he's Lord over your kid's school. He's Lord over that university where you're going to drop a student off. And so I just want to encourage you this morning, even in the challenging moments that we live in, to know that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. This is the pillar, the foundation of thinking like a follower of Jesus. He's large and in charge. We say it on Sunday and we live it through the week. We think as faithful followers of Jesus. He's the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. That's the foundation for thinking like a follower of Jesus. Now we're going to have a time of response um, in light of this truth. This morning, maybe you've never put your faith in Christ. You've never taken that step of saying, I want to make him Lord and King of my life. I understand that we're going to witness someone do that at the end of this service today. If you want to join them today, you want to be united with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come today. Unite your life with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by being baptized into Christ. This morning, you might need the prayers of the church. There's going to be two men of God who are shepherds of this congregation down here at the front to receive you. You know, there are times in life when you need someone to come alongside you and pray with you and to pray for you. Prayers of faith. There will be people here at the front who love you and would love to receive you. Let me invite you to stand if you're able to stand. And we'll respond in just a moment. But there's a few verses I haven't read in this passage. Verses 29 through 31, there's a promise for those who are faithful. There is a promise for those who think in this way. I love the way this translation says it. Verses 29 through 31 of Isaiah 40, he gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But listen to this. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. I'm going to invite you to respond right now as we sing together. Ooh,